I love uh, the text we're returning to because it, fel- it spells out vision and mission. And Crossroads has a pretty big vision. And it has a lot to do with the stuff that you already heard this morning. Donnie, thank you. That's just the heart of what we want to be about. Um, we, we, don't, we don't exist just for ourselves. We don't exist uh, to just do Sunday morning church. We don't exist to uh, build buildings. Our vision is to reach Grand Rapids, to serve it. And we long to see God revive this city. And I want to keep that before us. Um, So Luke chapter 14, sorry to do this to you, but I almost feel like maybe we should do some jumping jacks this morning before we read this. But stand up. Uh, We love to stand for the reading of God's word. Luke 14. And think about it. Right now we are fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Let's just, let's fix our eyes on him. One Sabbath, when Jesus went to eat in the house of a prominent Pharisee, he was being carefully watched. And there in front of him was a man suffering from abnormal swelling of his body. Jesus asked the most spiritual religious people of his day, people who had the title lawyer, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. So taking hold of the man, he healed him and sent him on his way. Then he asked them, if one of you has a child or an ox that falls into a well on the Sabbath, will you not immediately pull it out? And they remained silent. When he noticed how the guests picked the places of honor at the table, he told them this parable. When someone invites you to a wedding feast, do not take the place of honor, for a person more distinguished than you may have been invited. (laughs) I wonder who Jesus was looking at when he said that. If so, the host who invited both of you will come to say to you, give this person your seat. Then humiliated, you will have to take the least important place. But when you are invited... Take the lowest place so that when your host comes, he will say, friend, move up to a better place. And then you will be honored in the presence of the other guests. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. And Jesus isn't finished yet. Then Jesus looked to the host and said to him, when you give a luncheon or a dinner, do not invite your friends, your brothers or sisters, your relatives or your rich neighbors. If you do, they may invite you back. And so you will be repaid. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the cripple, the lame, the blind. And you will be blessed. And although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. And when one of those at the table with him heard this, he exclaimed to Jesus, Blessed is the one who will eat at the feast in the kingdom of God. This is God's word for today. You can be seated. Very interesting text, isn't it? A bit odd. Two things we need to do today. Uh, First, we need to review a little bit Luke, but I also think in understanding this text, 
for us to mine the riches of it, we need to look at it in light of the whole Bible, the, the biblical context, which I think is a, 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 foreign, a foreign thing to us. So let's just start with a little review. Probably for me to do this uh, the most efficiently this morning, there's a clause that is used two times in Luke's gospel that I think summarizes the whole book. The clause is this. If you have the PowerPoint ready, I don't know if you got it, but I'll take it. The clause is, the Son of Man came. He came. And of course, Son of Man is, is, is I think, Jesus' favorite description of himself. He, he loves this label. And he loves it because it's taken from Daniel 7. Daniel 7 talks about one like a son of man, and then it describes the son of man as the Lord of lords, the king of kings, to whom all the nations are going to bow. So when Jesus takes this title upon himself, it's, it's, it's pretty significant. Then he says the son of man came. In Luke 7, verse 34, he said, The Son of Man came eating and drinking. And it's said in the context of Jesus eating a meal in the home of another prominent Pharisee. In fact, this is that story when the whole banquet is interrupted by the town whore. The other time Jesus uses this uh, clause is in Luke 19, when he's also banqueting in the home of Zacchaeus. And here he says, The Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Now, here's why I think this sums up Luke's gospel. Because in these two places, we get to the heart of Jesus' vision and mission. Vision is your target, the thing you're going for. Mission is how you accomplish it. Jesus' vision is to come and to seek and to save lost people. That's why he comes across all worlds to this world to find us so he can bring us home. That's his vision. His mission, how he's going to accomplish this, is Jesus says, I came eating and drinking. Now, if you're even listening right now, I, I know what some of you are wrestling with. You're, you're thinking, isn't the cross the way that Jesus is going to accomplish his vision of seeking and saving lost people? Absolutely, yes. But even the cross is celebrated and appropriated in our lives through a meal. Jesus says, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no part of me. And if we just run to the cross and leave behind all these riches that Jesus provides for us in his, in his daily life, in his ministry, and, and, and who he is, and, and how he offers the kingdom, and to who he offers it, if, if we miss his method, we're missing a lot. I wish we could all see how Jesus did life. How he did his ministry. I think it would shock us. He came feasting. He came partying. 
In fact, when Jesus says what he says in Luke chapter 7, he's contrasting himself with John the Baptist. Jesus said John the Baptist and his disciples are are known for fasting and for forsaking the world. He says, not so the Son of Man. The Son of Man has come not to fast, but to eat and to drink. He comes to feast, to banquet. And then Jesus said, because he's not finished with this thought, he says, I know what you're saying about me. You're saying I'm a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and prostitutes. That's what they said about Jesus. I want you to put that in your pipe and smoke it. That's quite a label. A drunkard. A glutton. Now listen, I by no means think that Jesus was a glutton and a drunkard. He's continually, though, among drunkards and gluttons and sinners and prostitutes. And he's not just preaching sermons at them. He's eating and drinking with them. He's doing life with them because you don't just preach people to Christ. You love them to Christ. And so don't think of Jesus as just a preacher. He came eating and drinking. He's a lover. And what we're going to see, as we've already seen in Luke's gospel, is that this whole gospel is centered around meals. Jesus is either going to a meal, he's either at a meal, or he's leaving a meal, because Jesus' mission is centered around meals. In fact, if you look at a lot of his teaching, even like today, it involves food, banquets, feasts. On one occasion, this might be one of my favorite statements Jesus says about the kingdom of heaven. He says, the kingdom of heaven is like a woman with three measures of flour. And that thing, I think, just kind of goes over our head. But Jesus is referring to a story, a specific couple in the Bible. Who is it? Abraham and Sarah. When three strangers showed up at their house... Sarah prepares cakes with three measures of flour and say, we just kind of look at this story, gloss over it and say how nice, uh, what nice people they are. Jesus, though, says, if you want to know what the kingdom of heaven looks like, it's that. It's hospitality. And here's our problem with the word hospitality. When we think hospitality, we just automatically think Martha Stewart. We do. The word in the original language is philo, which means love, xenia. Philo, xenia. Xenia means stranger. It means love for strangers. Hospitality is essentially us being a hospital to the stranger. And it's expensive to be a hospital. In fact, do you know what three measures of flour is? It's 90 cups of flour. That's enough to make bread for 100 people. Abraham also kills the fatted calf. What they're doing is putting on this extravagant feast for three strangers they don't even know. 
If you want to know why God picks a guy like Abraham, look no further than this story of two people who open their home to strangers and throw an extravagant feast. And I think how we think of ministry, we think of ministry being all this churchy, religious stuff. And we've forgotten that a big part of ministry is simply showing extravagant love through our homes through our resources to the stranger. In fact, if you think about this, when God sets in motion his plan to redeem the world in Genesis 12, what he does is he finds a stranger. In fact, Abraham is called a Hebrew. That's sort of what Hebrew means. Hebrew means stranger or outsider or alien. It's, it, it's, it's like calling someone a crazy And we just looked at this in in Hebrews 11. Let's not get too far from the, the text that we studied all summer. In Hebrews 11, this is what it says about Abraham. By faith he made his home in the promised land like a stranger in a strange country. He lived in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him of the same promise. Essentially, Abraham is a Hebrew. He's a stranger in a strange place. And his, 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 his mission is to welcome strangers. And I want us to see this morning why welcoming strangers is such a big deal to Abraham and why it should be such a big deal to us. And I need to go down just a little bit of a rabbit trail right now. I want to introduce you to a term called Beit Av. Beit Av is the Hebrew word that simply we translate as house of the father or father's household. The Beit Av in the ancient world is everything the father or the patriarch owns. And it's a life arrangement where everything and everyone in that family, aunts, uncles, cousins, sons, daughters, are under his care. And it's his job as the father to meet every need of the household. So if you grew up in that world, your bait of was everything to you. It was your protection. It was your meaning. It was your happiness, your identity, your security. It's your very life. To lose it was to lose everything. In fact, the whole word redemption comes right out of this. When a family member becomes marginalized from the Beit Av, it's the father's responsibility to use whatever resources he has to bring that family member back into the family. That's redemption. Redemption is simply being restored to the household. It's being brought home. It's when you, for whatever reason, whether tragedy or bad decisions or famine or whatever, whatever alienates you from the family or causes you to be marginalized, it's when the father takes what he has and brings you home. So in the Bible, over and over again, when God says, I am your redeemer, think about, first of all, what God is saying about us. You've been alienated. You've been marginalized. You've, you, you, you've lost home. And when God says, I'm your redeemer, think about what God is saying about himself. He's saying, I'm your father. 
And I'm going to do whatever it takes to bring you home. Abraham is called to leave his bait of. That was an incredibly big deal. But only so that he could find the true bait of. The one he was created for. To know the love of his heavenly father. And to be brought home. Brought into his household, God's family. And here's the deal. Like Abraham, once you know home, you feel compelled to offer home to the world. And that's ministry. I love how God takes a bunch of strangers, how he invites them into his family, into his household, and then he commands this people, open your home and throw parties throw banquets. The first one prescribed is what we read about in verse 1 of Luke 14 on Sabbath. One Sabbath. Whether you know this or not, Sabbath is a banquet, and Jews to this day know this. When we lived in Jerusalem, I took a class by a rabbi who taught the parables of Jesus. It happened to be on Friday. Friday evening is when the start of Sabbath begins for for them. And he came into that classroom every Friday on fire. Giddy. Because it's Christmas. I can't wait. Sabbath. Couldn't wait. One of the things we would do is we we, would go into the city on, on Sabbath and We'd walk through Jerusalem and we'd pass home after home and we'd hear the celebrations and the feasts and the party. I mean, it it was Christmas once a week. And even a weekly feast isn't enough for God. So he then says three times a year, I want everyone to make way to Jerusalem so that three times a year for a whole week, you can just feast. God says, these are my feasts. They aren't just holy days, they're feasts. In fact, in Deuteronomy 14, listen to God's instruction. He says, use the silver to buy whatever you like. Cattle, sheep, wine, or other fermented drink, or anything you wish. Then you and your bait of, your household, shall eat there in the presence of the Lord, your God, and you will rejoice. I want you to think about this. 70 days on God's calendar are devoted to feasting. Or think about this. In the biblical story, for 40 years, every single day, God prepared a table before them. David in Psalm 23 says, You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemy. What the meal is in the, in the ancient world is, is it's the way that you reconcile. You reconcile through a feast. The, the way that you make covenants, it's, it's, it's through a feast. When Elijah wanted to kill himself, God didn't come and lecture him. He prepared a feast. Jesus prepares a feast for 5,000 people. And if that isn't enough, he does it later for 4,000 people. 
Peter, after he failed Jesus miserably, after he betrayed him, Jesus doesn't just lecture him either. Jesus prepares a meal. Peter, let's reconcile. Before Jesus dies, the Last Supper, which we've turned into a little nibble and a little sip. That was a feast. And it's a feast that expressed this relationship, the covenant, this, this reconciliation that takes between us and God. We're going to go uh, very soon in the next chapter of Luke, Luke 15. And we're going to look for three weeks at the parable of the prodigal. And we're going to see that when the younger brother returns, what does the father do? He throws a feast. In fact, Jesus says they're throwing a feast in heaven every time one of you repents. And we're going to see how the older brother didn't want to go to the feast because he was too spiritual, too good. And it's my contention that the church has become very older brotherish. Spirituality to us is about not eating. We've made it about fasting. If someone fasts, we just think that person is really spiritual. But we need to be careful with this. Colossians 2, 21 through 23, Paul had to warn them that this is nothing more than Western spirituality. It's not biblical spirituality. Because God's word called his people to feast 70 days a year to fast one day. That's quite a ratio. Now listen, I am not prescribing drunkenness and gluttony in this reckless, self-indulgent, self-promoting way in which our world does party. That's not what God is prescribing either. But I think sometimes we have gone so far the other way, we've become so uptight that we don't know how to do life anymore with real people in natural Real ways. Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. And the way he did it, he didn't just come preaching. He came to feast. He's Lord of the feast. I'm going to keep pushing this. Think about his first miracle. What was it? Water to wine. Where was it? At a feast. Do you know how many gallons he turned into wine that day? A hundred. <laughs> wow. Anybody know why? Can I have the next PowerPoint slide? On this mountain, the Lord Almighty, this is Isaiah 25, will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats, the finest of wines. On this mountain, he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all people, the sheet that covers all nations. He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away all the tears from all faces, and he will remove his people's disgrace from all the earth. Isn't that awesome? The banquet! The messianic banquet. So here Jesus is at a feast in our text. It's a prominent Pharisee's house. Prominent means a leading rabbi. He's a big shot. Because of its prominence, um, this is probably one of the biggest parties in town. A long list of who's who is probably there. Jesus being one of them. Because Jesus' fame at this point is off the charts. 
I can see them all just, wow, there's Jesus. Look at Jesus. They're watching him. And as they're watching him, the text says that Jesus takes this guy whose body is all swelled up with disease, and he looks right at these big shots, and he does the rabbinic thing right to this great rabbi. He asks a question. Hey, guys, is it lawful for me to heal this guy on Sabbath? I love the guts and courage of Jesus. He heals the guy, but he's not done. I picture him standing up and then lecturing them on on, on party 101. And first of all, he addresses the guests. He says, when you're a guest at a party, don't look for the people on top and in the center. Woo! That one hits home. Is that what you do at parties? Is that what you do every time you walk into a social situation? Do you look for the important people? Do you try to find the inner circle? Do you try to discern uh, the popular clique? C.S. Lewis puts it this way. He says, we all have this unhealthy desire to belong. We have this dark ambition to move in the right circles and to win the praise from the right kinds of people. He says, we all have this desperate need to be on the inside. And we're also afraid of being on the outside. That's why I think when we walk into any strange place, and it could even be some of you this morning, you walk into Crossroads, you first look for your kind of people, and then you look for that inner ring and and, and those important people. Some of us us feel this at at a deep level. We, We desperately seek to be on the inside. We're afraid of being on the outside. And I think the reason for this goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden because God kicked us out of the garden and we feel that in a profound sense that we're on the outs trying to get in. And that's the beauty of the gospel. The gospel is that through Christ, God brings us in. Listen to Jesus in verse 9. Look at the text. Jesus says, If so, the host who invited both of you will come and say to you, you who are seeking to get on the inside and to get on the top, give this person your seat. Then humiliated, you will have to take the least important place. And then Jesus makes his point. But when you are invited, take the lowest place so that when your host comes, he will say, friend, move up to a better place and then you'll be honored in the presence of all the other guests. And that's so at the heart of God. That's, that's who he is. Just practically speaking, just, just think about this for a moment. The person who tries so hard to make friends usually has no friends. And the person trying so hard to be popular becomes a pretty annoying person oftentimes to be around. The person craving to be on the top is usually the person who's alone in this life. And oftentimes the jokes are on them because everyone knows what they don't know. And then look at verses 10 and 11 of this text because now Jesus is going to finish this thing off with a strong point. Verse 11, for those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves 
will be exalted. Are you a humble person? Do you live a humble life? Do you live to exalt yourself or do you live to exalt others? I praise God for the family that I was raised. I owe a lot to my parents. And I think this was especially true of my mom because my mom's dad was an alcoholic and she knew what it was like to be in a family that was marginalized. My mom always had, ha- has had this incredible heart for the underdog. And I was raised in a family that, 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 that where, where we were told that we were to gravitate to the underdog, to the, to, to the least, to the hurting, to the broken. And if I'm just making a general observation from my own life, I don't oftentimes find humility and authenticity among the rich. It's a general statement. It doesn't hold true. But not even just towards the materially rich, but also towards the spiritual rich. People who think they're spiritual big shots are oftentimes the most proud, arrogant, inauthentic people. There's a reason why a generation is leaving the church to go to the bar instead. There is. Because that's where they find real. That's where they find authentic. And I love this church because I, I, I believe that God has uh, brought all of us together because uh, we want to forsake arrogance and we want to forsake being fakes and phonies and we want to keep it real with each other. And I want to be a church that knows how to be guests the way Jesus prescribes, where we're not just smoozers, where, where, where we don't try to kiss up to, to certain kinds of people, where instead we are gravitating to the kind of people Jesus gravitated to. God opposes the proud. He gravitates towards the humble. I love Jesus. Not only does he address the crowd, but he has the guts and the courage to also address this host, the one who actually has the resources to open his home and offer this feast. And look at what he says in verse 12. Then Jesus said to his host, when you give a luncheon or a dinner, do not invite your friends, your brothers or sisters, your relatives or your rich neighbors. If you do, they may invite you back and you will be repaid. But when you Give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. I don't think Jesus is saying never to have parties and banquets with family and friends. I think he assumes that this is something that's just going to happen. It's, it's happened every Sabbath in the Jewish world for, for thousands of years. But this is Jesus' call. And we need to recapture this. And to recapture it, it means, I think, that we need to establish home and meal with our own, with our family. And this is something that I grew up with. This is something that has been lost today. We're so transient. We're so busy. We're so fragmented. We don't do home life nearly as well. 
Home is what our hearts long for. Home is what we are made for. Home is what God offers the world. God is in himself home. He's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He's family. And he made us to offer home and family to the world. And we don't just do home as a dead end for our people and our friends and our kind because God didn't. God offered home to the alienated, to the marginalized, to the stranger. And then he said to his people, now that you know home, offer home to the world. We are not going to just preach people into the kingdom. We are called to love people into the kingdom. And here's my question this morning. Does this reflect crossroads? Because the resources we have in this room, just in regards to home. And if we think these four walls is it, and this is what we offer the world, I'm sorry, we're fooling ourselves. They're not coming here. We got to go to them. And we got to take the most potent thing that God has given to us. It's, it's not church buildings. It's not pastors and clergy and staff and worship services. The most potent thing God has put in our laps is your home. The church in the first two centuries went from city to city to city, not through church buildings, through homes. This is on you. How are you using your home? How are you using your resources for the kingdom of heaven? Let me end with this. I love how this thing ends out. A man who's there yells out. He just yells out at the party after Jesus talks. He says, blessed is the one who will eat at the feast in the kingdom of God. So Jewish, because Jews believe because of passages like Isaiah 25 that when Messiah comes, the thing he's going to offer is the great messianic banquet. Jesus says in John 14, in my father's bait of are many rooms and I go to prepare a place for you. Yes, we've become alienated from God. We've been alienated from home, but Jesus came and he found us. He he, he came to this world to bring us home. We were once strangers, but now he's brought us in to be sons and daughters. And I want us to know this morning that hospitality is expensive. Look at what it cost the father. Look at what it cost the son. They used all their resources to bring us home. Jesus lost home. He lost the best home there was. Father, Son, Holy Spirit continually pouring joy and honor and, and, and love in, in, into one another. He left that. Became homeless. Even died outside the community. 
Jesus lost home so we could have home. And the one who became the ultimate homeless one became the ultimate host. And it's all moving to a great feast. The messianic banquet where Jesus will stand up as the ultimate host and welcome us in. Which is why those of you who know this home, go out there. Offer home to a world estranged, marginalized, exiled from God. And love them back in. This morning, only for those of you who feel very far from home right now, from the home you've been made for, you're, you're just a long way away from it, and you feel God's finger on your life calling you home, I'm going to serve you communion back there, right in the back. If you want to come home today, maybe for the first time, Maybe for the hundredth time. God, thank you for this family. Thank you for what you're doing here. Thank you that we forsake the world's way of doing your kingdom, which is a Sunday morning service alone. Thank you for Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. Thank you for our workplaces, our sphere of influence, our neighborhoods, the places we live. Thank you, God, for filling us with your Holy Spirit, for empowering us with the gospel of Christ. Thank you, Lord, for giving us the experience of home that we can now invite others into. Unleash us for the sake of the gospel. Amen.